Please remain standing for the reading of today's gospel lesson from Luke 3, 15 through 13, uh, 17 and 21 and 22. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I'm not worthy to untie the thong on his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, grace and peace to each of you in the name of Christ. It is uh, so good to be in worship with you on this first Sunday of January, our reaffirmation uh, Sunday of our baptismal vows. And thanks, many thanks to Cynthia for reading our text today, uh, to the choir for a, a very appropriate anthem uh, today. And I haven't had the chance to recognize uh, this before you, before the congregation, but if you see a young man sleeping over here, it's because he has a new baby. This is Ryan Jones. For those of you who don't know, uh, Devin is at home with baby Grayson. Is a week old now? Week and a half old. And so we celebrate that. I don't have a picture, but I have a feeling that Ryan does, if you'd like to see some pictures afterwards. I just have this gut feel. Uh, we congratulate you, Ryan and Devin, and we're so thankful for new birth and for uh, the, the baby's health and mother's health as well. Um, and while I'm at it, I want to say thanks to Paul Farrington for being on the bench today, who is going the second, third mile today. And Paul, we are remembering Karen in our prayers especially, and that you are here is a gift to us and our gift to you and Karen is to be very specific in our prayers for her health in these next days. We love you and we love Karen and we pray for both of you and we're grateful for your gift today with us. Last week I was rummaging through an old box in my closet in my home office that was full of relics and keepsakes. Some of you have these that, that somehow these Keepsakes have survived the culling of our itinerant lives, uh, Georgia and Tennessee and all in between. And as I was going through it, I found an, an old, my, my old birth certificate was there. It's good to remember uh, that day. Uh, driver's license, my first driver's license was there. Uh, my social security card was there. And, and a few report cards, at least the good ones, were in the box. Uh, some old photographs, a scrapbook, uh, a diploma from high school, and down in the bottom of the box was an old baptismal certificate. It's dated November the 6th, 1960. I looked it up. 1960, November 6th was indeed a Sunday, a service that was officiated by my great uncle Clovis, who was pushing 80 at the time. He was born in 1882. He was a retired pastor from Waverly, Tennessee. 
Of course, I have absolutely no memory of it. I was five months old, but I'm told by my mother that my great uncle took me up in his arms. He asked my mother and dad some questions and anointed my head with water and then announced to the world and to the congregation that I was a child of God. The congregation stood and made a promise to God and to my family to bring me up, to raise me up in an atmosphere of grace so that somehow, someday, I might accept for myself what they accepted for me on that day, which I did seven years later, and I have over and over and over and over again reaffirmed what happened that day. In fact, the truth is I'm still growing in the grace that was extended to me as a little baby in that little church in North Nashville, which used to be called Buchanan Street. It's now called Hickson Memorial. I'm still, I'm still mystified, and I'm still trying to discern and understand the grace that was offered to me 60-plus years ago. It also reminds me of the story of the five-year-old who had been baptized in his Methodist church one Sunday morning, and on the way home with the family in the car, he burst into tears, and his parents were curious, and they said, what's the matter? And he sniffled through his tears out this answer, Mommy, Daddy, the minister who baptized me said I was to be raised in a Christian home, but I want to stay with you guys. <laughs> well, it's a part of our tradition. If you've been here more than several years, you know that it's typical for us, it's traditional for us that the first Sunday in January or the Sunday after Epiphany, Epiphany was yesterday, January the 6th, which celebrates the visit of the Magi to the cradle. It is our tradition that on this day we remember our own baptism and, and then we come and we're touched by the water and we reaffirm our covenant with God as we begin 2024. I think it's very fitting then, Cynthia, that you read the text that, that you read for us to recall the baptism of Jesus. It's interesting that all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, mentioned this particular scene at the Jordan River. In fact, some of you with me have visited the traditional site where Jesus was baptized by John at the Jordan River itself. What you may not know is that in the first century, the very idea that Jesus was baptized was cause for concern among many in the early church because John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for sin. That simply means to turn. It means sorrow for sin. And I don't know about you, but I've always been taught from the time I was a child that Jesus was the only man who ever lived who was without sin. In fact, there's scriptural precedence for this. It's in Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted, as are we, yet without sin. And so this was a cause for concern for some. Moreover, the fact that John the Baptist did the honors seems to put Jesus in, in a rather subordinate role, a secondary role. Luke says that many in the crowd wondered, in fact, if John the Baptist was actually the Messiah, 
But Matthew, in his account, helps us by explaining that John tried to stop Jesus. In fact, it's right there in the text. Jesus, it's you who ought to be baptizing me, said John. And then Jesus says something that's intriguing. No, let it be so for now, for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? And how on earth would the Lord's baptism fulfill all righteousness? Well, I have an answer for you. Jesus fulfills righteousness through his own baptism by getting in line with all the people before him. Jesus does not distance himself from sinners. In fact, earlier in Luke 3, in the same text, we're told that in that line to be baptized by John were tax collectors, were soldiers with blood on their hands who would not have been allowed in a synagogue, and your garden variety sinners. The fact that Jesus is in the same line, his baptism is an act of solidarity with a nation and a world of sinners. And it blows my mind that the one sinless man would get in the same queue with all who are damaged and broken by sin, with all of those who had all but given up on God and themselves. And Jesus gets in line. I'm convicted sometimes that that those of us who follow Jesus, too often in the church, we try to correct people before we connect with people. And that's a concern. Jesus never did that. In fact, if the incarnation means anything, it means that relationship comes first and change comes second. Every now and then I'll I'll hear a well-intended church person say, well, I'm befriending so-and-so because I'm trying to save them. And I want to say, well, no, no, no. That's God's job. Our job is to befriend those in need. Relationship first, change later. I'm reminded how the religious leaders, the Pharisees namely, You remember how they labeled Jesus later in his ministry? They said he's a glutton and a drunkard. He is a friend of sinners and tax collectors. But what they meant as a criticism turned out to be a compliment to Jesus. On one occasion in the scripture, you remember the Pharisees asked the question of the disciples, why does the teacher eat with sinners and tax collectors. And Jesus, who overhears, replies for himself. He says, hey, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's sick folk. I haven't come to call righteous people. I've come to call sinners. How many of you, just out of curiosity, were here on Christmas Eve? Would you lift your hand if you were here? Yeah, I I think near all of Williamson County, maybe, was here on Christmas Eve. It was a memorable night, it was an incredible night. I talked to Travis Garner that same night who had Christmas Eve services in between BUMC and the village and the online audience. We had nearly 8,000 people. And I, I, said, I said to one of our liturgists after several of the services, uh, I, I sense a hunger in this place that I've never sensed before. That people weren't coming just out of routine. People were coming out of desperation. 
People are coming out of hunger, starving to death for meaning. About that time, I I read a, a report in the Wall Street Journal in the review section on a Sunday, and it said that even atheists and agnostics come to church on Christmas Eve that even non-believers come into the house on that night because they're instinctively hungry for transcendence and connection and meaning beyond ourselves. And I should have said it that night, but I say it to you today, whether you come today believing in God or not, I want to tell you God believes in you. God gets in our line. He becomes one of us. And that's the incarnation. A friend to sinners. Also, it's interesting that one of the distinctions in Luke's account that's different from the synoptic gospels is that Luke is always emphasizing prayer. I want you to listen again to the text. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus had also been baptized and while he was praying, the heaven was opened, the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are mine, you are my son, the beloved with whom I am well pleased. Luke, more than any other gospel narrative, connects the practice of prayer with spiritual power. In fact, you see it in the book of Acts as well, that the life of Jesus and the early church is always punctuated by prayer. His whole life is a dialogue, a conversation with God by which he is infused to serve. But key in this text and key in all four gospels and the reason I think baptism is so pivotal in the life of the church is because baptism at its core is a sacred means of conferring identity on us. That is, through the water and the laying out of hands, God identifies us in a specific way. He calls us the beloved. I love that word. The word in Greek is akapetos, which means you are esteemed. To be beloved of God means that you are dear to God. It means that you are God's favorite. It means that you're actually worthy of love. Now, I don't have to tell you because I'm, I'm preaching to the choir today, but we live in an age of identity confusion, don't we? We live in an age of identity crisis. It was Eric Erickson who first coined that term meant for adolescents who are struggling to live into adulthood. Our 30-year-old daughter has a t-shirt that she wears that says, I'm not adulting today. She's struggling with some of that. Later on, it became a term for those of us who hit our 40s, who were at a midlife crisis and wondering who we'd been and who we were to be. We live in the age of of identity theft, identity confusion and crisis. I sometimes think we're like Legion. You remember the story of Legion who was living in the caves, who was demon-possessed, whose mind became a sea of conflicting voices in such a way that he no longer knew who he was. He no longer knew his identity. 
Isn't it true that much of our discomfort and anxiety comes from simply suppressing our true identity? You remember the name Carl Jung, who was a Swiss psychologist. He was also a preacher's kid who one day said, and I quote, the world will ask you who you are, and if you don't know, the world will tell you, will label you. Some of our confusion, I'm convinced, is heightened because we define each other and ourselves in far too narrow a way. We do it stereotypically sometimes by race, by class, by creed, by gender, by geography, by nationality, by language and political perspective and socioeconomics. And certainly those are pieces of our identity. They're parts of who we are. But our core identity is in none of that. Our core identity is in the baptismal bowl. It's in the water. You are the beloved of God. And there's not a thing you can do about it. 1 John 3 says it like this. See what love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. Some of you remember from college or high school, Descartes, the philosopher who defined humanity by our ability to reason. He said, I think, therefore I am. Postmodernism defines us by our emotion. I feel, therefore I am. I saw a sticker the other day that said, I shop, therefore I am. Somebody else with a computer, I blog, therefore I am. All of these ways that we define who we are. But our core identity is not in our capacity to think, to feel, or consume. It's in our capacity to love and to be loved. Jesus would have said it like this, I love, therefore I am. Because if the nature of God is love, and it is, then the nature of those who are made and remade in the image of God is also love. In fact, to be fully human is to love. And to be unloving is to be inhumane. You're beloved. Henry Nouwen wrote a book called Life of the Beloved. It's an absolute must for your library. In the book, Life of the Beloved, Henry says this, listen, the world tells you many lies about who you are, and you simply have to be realistic enough to remind yourself of this. Every time you feel hurt, offended, or rejected, you must dare to say to yourself, these feelings, as strong as they are, are not telling me the truth about me. The truth, even though I cannot feel it right now, is that I'm a chosen child of God. I'm precious in God's eyes. I'm called the beloved from all eternity and held safe in the everlasting trust. Now, when goes on to say, as you see yourself as beloved, you will see others more clearly too. Instead of making us feel that we're better than others, being divinely loved will enable us to see others as beloved too. To love and be loved. Have you all gotten your star word yet? 
I hope we're about to run out of star words. If we run out today, we will get more, we promise. Epiphany star words that we're giving out today, words to live by. I got mine last week. I was reading recently the word of the year for 2023. You're not going to believe this. This is not a church word, but the word of the year, public, this was a secular uh, site, said the word of the year for 2023, are you ready? Hallucinate. I have no idea who the committee is that makes these decisions. I, I think they're the same ones that left Georgia out of the final four, but I'm not going there today. I, I'm still a little bit bitter about that. Hallucinate, that's the word of the year. Other runner-up words, said the site, were these, strike, riz, you have to be under 30, I think, to know what riz means, wokeism, indicted, wildfire. Those are the words of the year. Now, you'll be glad to know none of these words will be given out today. <laughs> but the words that we are giving you today are words like called, depend, focus, listen, laugh, willing, still. You don't get to choose your word. You pick your word. I picked mine randomly last Wednesday. You know what mine is this year? Comfort. I asked a friend who's on our lead team with me what she thought it meant, and she said, well, probably you think the obvious answer is that you're going to bring comfort to others. But she said, I have a different idea. Maybe God is saying that you need to allow Jesus to comfort you. Maybe you need to give yourself permission to find comfort yourself. And it hit me that in that baptismal scene, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit, and later he says the Holy Spirit is the comforter. Isn't it great to know you don't have to lie on a bed of nails to feel beloved or worthwhile? You don't have anything to prove to anybody about your worth. God has already spoken. Paul Tillich was right when he said salvation is simply accepting the fact that we have already been accepted. And I don't know about you, but I'm comforted this morning by the image of an old baptismal certificate that reminds me of who I am and who you are. You are beloved of God and what matters most is not what you are it's who you are and whose you are you're beloved last word I have a pastor friend whose name is Dr. Michael Brown some of you may know Michael Brown he is a retired pastor who's serving the Methodist Church in Blowing Rock, North Carolina, which is not a bad gig in retirement, by the way. Michael tells the story of a leader in his congregation who's one of the beloved. He's a senior citizen now. His family uh, is a beautiful family. He gives comfort and guidance to the whole community. But Michael said, by my friend's own admission, he hasn't always been that way. In fact, Michael said he told me that when he was younger, he was always looking for trouble. And if the trouble was really bad, he usually looked for it twice and found it, and he, it found him as well. 
But then his friend said, I met Elizabeth, this kind, gracious, faithful girl who loved me no matter how big a scoundrel I was. And little by little, because I wanted to live up to her love, I became less and less a scoundrel. And finally, I proposed and we married. And I've spent my whole life trying to make her as happy as she has made me. And then Michael said he said something that I'll never forget. He said, the truth is, Elizabeth just loved me into loving. And I became a different person. She loved me into loving. And that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. Our baptism is a sign of it. You've been loved into loving. And there's nothing you can do about it. It's just who you are, beloved. It's your core. It's in the water. And when you receive your own acceptance by God, the rest of life becomes a means of trying to make God as joyful as God has made us to his glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.